All right, good evening and welcome. We're glad you're here. We're in the Song of Solomon tonight, which is in the wisdom literature. You got the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. The content is more mature tonight. So if you're watching at home with family uh, or here in the sanctuary tonight, just a heads up that we're going to be delicate, but there is mature content in the Song of Solomon. So that's where we're at tonight. We're looking at the fifth idyll. The fifth idyll is like the fifth poem or the fifth act, if you will, in the musical theater of the book. Just a a couple of reminders. Uh, We're going to pick it up in chapter 6, verse 4. The interpretation is, uh, there are some considerations there. One is that it is a real historical couple, Solomon and the Shulamite bride, I mentioned to you. A second possibility, it's a poetic couple that's been invented, if you will, by the writer. Let there be light, and there was light. And um, there's also another angle with which we can look at the story, and that is to take the spiritual high ground or get underneath the text and see it as Christ and the church or God and Israel. If you were living in the Old Testament times, Christ and the church in New Testament times. I was reading a writer this week who said that Even the Puritans loved the Song of Solomon, but oftentimes people would try to strictly take just a spiritual angle on the book, and sometimes that's a bit of a stretch to do that, but a lot of church history is filled with people who thought, even though the Bible talks about these things and God blesses these things, still had kind of a weird aversion to talking about the physical body, for example, or intimacy within marriage. In fact, at the Council of Nicaea, there was something that they voted on. It was on the table that all the ministers represented at Nicaea would discontinue physical relations with their wives and stop living with their wives. That was on the table at the Council of Nicaea. It got voted down, thankfully. But this is how, in, the, in this arena of intimacy and physical love, there's been confusion even among great theologians, like Augustine, for example, who said that he felt that intimacy was only for procreation purposes, that is to have children, but for no other purpose. And that is just simply dead wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not a good thorough understanding of the Bible. And while there is a lot to respect from a theologian like an Augustine, uh, he didn't know everything. And neither did the ancients know everything, and neither do modern commentators know everything. And so what we need to do is sit before the Word of God and ask for understanding and discernment as to how we should apply the Word of God. So let's, let's pray for that. Father, we pray for understanding and discernment. We cry out for it like we would search for silver and hidden treasure. But more than that, this is more valuable than riches and wealth because when we mine the treasure of the word of God, we find the most beautiful, uh, profitable things that life can give us. And they're given from our maker, our savior, our king, our God. And I, and I pray that tonight we would have a good understanding of what you would want us to see from the Word of God. And I ask that you would bless 
our ears, that they'd be open, our hearts, that they'd be pliable, and that we would act upon this word given in love and profitable for all of us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. At the recent National Day of Prayer gathering, uh, which is put on by some members of this church held at Eagle Glen Golf Course, they had a judge this year, and the judge was talking about his faith journey, and he described his faith journey, if, if I recollect correctly, in three stages. One, he met Jesus as his Savior. Two, he came to know Jesus as his Lord. And three, he came to know Jesus as his lover. And it was a little, I guess, strange at first to hear a judge, and I'm talking about a sitting judge who's been involved in politics, and he's, a, he's from the South, and he has a bit of a twang in his voice and all of that. And he says, this is what his journey has been like. He met Jesus as Savior, Lord, and he's learning to know him as lover, the lover of my soul, the one who knows me best and will love me throughout all time, and the one who loved me so much that he died on the cross for me. Where we are in the book is in the fifth idle, as I mentioned. There's a total of seven, so we're coming to the end of the book. And what we've just seen is this couple, this ideal couple, this young, married, excited couple have their first fight. It's almost like the first scratch you get on a new car, right? You know, you buy that new vehicle, you want a perimeter around it. I remember when I got a Harley some years ago, I no longer have the Harley, but our garage became, you know, there had to be a perimeter around that Harley. And if anything was tipping in the wrong direction, Pastor Michael would let people know about it. You know, that needs to be moved. That could fall into the bike. Don't touch the bike. Careful with the bike, right? Then something happens. And you get your first scratch on that car, something happens, and all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, things change. Well, this first couple has had their first disagreement. You might remember if you were with us on Sunday that he came home late from work. He came knocking on the door, but she was already in bed. She had her slippers on, cold cream, you know, you name it. And she said, no, I, I'm in bed. I have a headache, whatever, um, and she didn't want to answer the door. And we drew the spiritual analogy to Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. And so he loved her through that. He responded in love. And we learned some lessons about anticipating conflict and how to resolve conflict and how to fight fair and how to fight from the foundation of a covenant and not to threaten divorce and all of these things. And he responded in love and her heart began to pound for him and she pursued him out into the city streets, if you recall. But he was nowhere to be found. He had left and she went out and the, the guards of the city beat her up. They took her shawl, they beat her up. And it was a difficult time for her. And she had an epiphany after she describes this one that she loves. She had an epiphany that he would be in the garden tending his flock. And she said, aha, I know where he is. And they've moved through their first disagreement, their first fight. If we have a conflict, and we will have conflict in marriage, and by the way, there's been people uh, in this congregation who've been giving us some feedback about the Song of Solomon, just so you guys know. Some people have said uncomfortable but necessary. Some people have just said uncomfortable, and they've left it at that. Uh, some people have been rejoicing that we're teaching the Song of Solomon, 
And some people have actually said that they're having some good conversations with their spouse and others. And so this is a good place for us to be. To be uncomfortable is actually a stepping stone to being better. Anything that you do in life that's worthwhile, you're probably going to be uncomfortable. Whether it's a workout program, whether it's, you know, you want to do something that uh, maybe stretches you beyond uh, what you're comfortable with or what you're used to. If you want to make progress, you have to be uncomfortable for the moment. If you're comfortable with Bible teaching, you may want to uh, get into a harder book. I know for me, having taught the Bible now, this is my 30th year of teaching the Bible. Um, I love to delve into new territory and find new discoveries. And, and the Bible is full of that. That's the beauty of it. I could teach a book 17 different times and find new nuggets in it. But the Song of Solomon is still, for many of us, or most of us, relatively fresh content. Uh, maybe you read it before in your annual Bible reading, or maybe you've come across a couple chapters and you're like, eh, I think I'll go, <laughs> I'll go over to Matthew or something like that. But whatever it may be, it's beneficial. And so this couple coming off the heels of a fight, I entitled this Learning to Dance Again. Uh, I'm not much of a dancer. Oftentimes when I'm at weddings uh, and it comes to that time to dance, uh, I'm the, usually the preacher at the wedding. So, you know, when the preacher gets out on the dance floor, people have, there's, there's mixed responses to the preacher on the dance floor, especially if he can't dance. But oftentimes I'm there at a wedding with my own wife. And now as time has drawn, gone by, you know how they do that thing. Couples have been married this many years, come out to the dance floor. And, and all of a sudden, then they start to whittle it down. Okay, if you've been married over five years, over 10, and then there's the, you know, there's a handful of couples still barely moving. <laughs> the dance floor. No, I'm just kidding. And, uh, but we've become one of those couples now. At the last wedding, I think we were, you know, one of the final like three or four couples standing because we've been married over three decades now. And I know that doesn't compare to some marriages that we may be well aware of. But nonetheless, I have found myself having conducted a wedding, presided over a wedding, taken a couple through the vows, been on a dance floor and looked into my bride's eyes and remembered our first dance. And I hope that we never get so stiff and crusty that we can't have a little fun and learn to dance again. Now, dancing may not be your thing. It's not necessarily my thing. But there's a beauty when you see two people come together in love and simply get face to face, maybe during a slow song, and just share a moment together. It's a very precious thing. Well, we're going to see some of that imagery tonight. But first, as we jump into 6-4 of the Song of Solomon, he says to her, you are as beautiful. Beauty is celebrated all, all, all over the Bible. If you were curious uh, of some names, Sarah is described as beautiful, Rebecca, Rachel, Abigail, and many others. So the Bible doesn't ignore beautiful um, people, or in this case, women that I just listed. He says to her, 6-4 of the song, you are as beautiful as Terza. Uh, Terza actually means beautiful or pleasing, my darling. 
as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as an army with banners. So they are now reunited after conflict. This is a time to kiss and make up. And can you see what he does right from the beginning, right from Jump Street, if you will? He calls her beautiful. He says, you're my darling. You are my love. Terza, and then, of course, Jerusalem. Terza became later under uh, one of the kings, the capital of the northern kingdom, so northern Israel. And Jerusalem was the capital of the Holy Land, and it was the city of the great king. And these two cities were city centers or capitals. And I think this is what he's saying to her. You, my love, are the center of my world. You are everything to me. When we're working our way back from conflict, let's say that we've hurt each other. Let's say that we've said some things that we regretted. One thing we need to do, and I'm going to give you some R words tonight, is reassure. We need to give our spouse reassurance. And so I think that's part of what he's doing by using Terza, verse 4, and Jerusalem, is he is saying to her, you are the center of my world. You are the most important thing to me. Psalm 48, verse 2 says, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Psalm 50, verse 2 says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. When pilgrims go to Israel and they get to stand on the Mount of Olives and they look to the Temple Mount, is an exhilarating moment to see the holy city, the city of Jerusalem, the city of the great king. And he says to her, this is what you are like to me. You're, you're, uh, you are like the one who shines forth with the, the glitter of Solomon's temple, if you will, with the, the worship of the living God, with the beauty of holiness. He even mentions an army. If you look at the end of verse four, you as, you're as awesome as an army with banners. When an army marches and uh, it fights under the banners of its God, it would carry a flag, and that flag would depict the deity. In the case of Israel, they fought behind the ark of God. And so they would uh, let the ark lead the way, if you will, let the priests lead the way, like they did crossing the Jordan into the promised land. And so the lesson may be simply this. We need to say to our spouse, after we've blown it, you are the most important thing in my life, and we need to build them back up because we've probably hurt them. I will often say it to couples at wedding ceremonies, there's no one who can love you more than your spouse, and there's no one who, that can hurt you more. And if we have hurt our spouse, one of the best things that we can do is try to reassure them with our words. And it would be better if we never spoke the words in the first place. Amen? But none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. James 3 says that there's no one who always controls his tongue or never makes a mistake in this area. And we all know it well, too well. On a spiritual plane, I would say this. Oh, that the world would see the beautiful, transformative work of the Lord in my life. That I would respond to the Lord in such a way that he says, well done, good and faithful servant. 
that we, the church, would be that shining city on a hill. That's what Jesus said we would be as we walked with him. We would be a light to the world. And oh, that we would be those who are wrapped in the beauty of God, in the banner of the Lord. We fight under the Lord's banner. The Lord is my banner. That's what Israel did in Exodus 17. They fought under the banner of the Lord. The Lord is the one who holds me together. Remember, I said to you that banner could be understood, if you remember, way back in Exodus 17, the Lord is the one I lean on. And you can go back maybe to the image once again of the dance. And so he says to her, look, honey, I love you. Let's, let's dance again. He says, turn your eyes away from me, verse 5, for they have confused me or overwhelmed me, ESV, NIV. I, I'm overcome or overpowered by them, new living. Your hair is like a flock of goats. We've seen this before. They've descended from Gilead. Now, we've learned that the idea of the hair coming down is a pro provocative statement. But one thing that the bridegroom says to the bride or Solomon to the Shulamite woman, he says, you turn your eyes away from me. What does that mean? That means that her eyes are fixed on him and that she's overwhelmed by his love. I want you to see what's happening here. He's telling her, you are beautiful. You are my world. You are everything to me. And his words have captivated her eyes. Her eyes are fixed on him because he is speaking words of love. Have you noticed that if someone gets beat up enough, their eyes will turn away from everything. They will spend their life looking down or looking away. But when someone speaks words of love to us, it enraptures or engages our eyes because our eyes are indeed the windows to our soul. Her response to his loving goodness is a deep attraction that she has. And you could even say that she has bedroom eyes because She's enthralled with his uh, descriptions of her and his love for her. He has her full attention. His words are touching and deep. And from what we can see so far, he hasn't even touched her. But there's a way to touch someone with our words. There's a way to get to their heart and bring healing. Proverbs twelve eighteen says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing, Proverbs 12, 18. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Blessed word, I'm sorry, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and healing to the bones, Proverbs 16, 24. The church is called to turn its eyes upon Jesus and not just turn our eyes upon him, but fix our eyes upon him. And why do we look to him? Why do we look to things above and not the things of the earth, Colossians 3, because we know that we are to keep our eyes on him. That's where our eyes belong. What invites us to gaze upon him? Well, the old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace or praise. You see, it's his love that invites me to look deeply into his eyes. On a spiritual level, this is what I want to do. I want to know his heart. 
I want to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. And I think that what's going on here, back and forth between these two folks and specifically from the bridegroom is something like this. He doesn't want her to think that she has to do anything sexually to earn his forgiveness. He says, you're beautiful. I love you. Turn your eyes away from me because I'm, I'm being overwhelmed by the look in your eye. There is no price tag on my forgiveness. We don't need to be together sexually at this moment for you to know that I love you. Because love keeps no record of wrongs. If you put a price tag on your forgiveness, it's not forgiveness. If you put a price tag on, well, you do this for me, and then maybe I'll do this for you, that is not biblical forgiveness. And so this is a beautiful exchange between these two as they make amends. He is going to describe her, and he, he talks about her teeth in verse 6. We've already uh, spent some time digging out the meanings here. He comments on her temples in verse 7. It may speak of her rosy cheeks behind the veil. It seems that Solomon is exhausting metaphors to describe her beauty because he repeats things that he said earlier in the book. By the way, he does not point to her flaws, but to her beauty. If you want to see a marriage that is doing well, you will watch a marriage that there's a focus more on strengths than weaknesses. It doesn't mean that you can't talk about that, those weaknesses. It doesn't mean that you can't speak the truth in love to make progress. But if you spend more of your time looking at flaws, then that is going to be your focus and you're going to find them. And if the Lord spent all of his time looking at your flaws and my flaws, we in deep trouble. But he's robed us in his righteousness and he sees us through the finished work of his son, and he doesn't focus on our flaws, but on the beauty of who we are and who we are becoming in Christ. Amen? And would to God that we could see each other that way more. In fact, I, I, I will tell you that this will be transformational in your life if you can see people more through God's eyes. Everybody's a work in progress. Love covers a multitude of sins, shortcomings, etc. Her cheeks reveal his unchanging love, unwavering devotion. Uh, they are red. It makes me think of just the beauty of love. Maybe it's something like this. Honey, I love you like I loved you on the first night of our marriage. There are no strings attached. We're going to dance again. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines. Verse 8 and maidens without number. Some think that this points to Solomon's harem before he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's possible. Some of the older commentators actually take this view. They think that Solomon's young and he's still building up the harem and his political marriages and so forth. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that these women make up some of the society uh, around or the people at the wedding, but it does say queens and concubines, so it does make one think of a harem. And it was wrong for a king to have multiple wives, but that was the way things were in that day. And so he's saying something like this, however you take this, he's saying, I chose you 
I chose you above all of them. Ephesians 1.4 talks about God choosing us in Christ Jesus. That's a bit of a mystery, right? Why did he choose me? <laughs> I, I don't understand that fully. I don't know why he decided to love me, why he decided to love Israel, etc. But he loves his people. And he says, you are my dove. My perfect one is unique. Nine. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who bore her. The maiden saw her. And they're mentioned in the verse above. Uh, Maidens without number. The maidens saw her and they called her blessed. They agree. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1 verse 3. We are a blessed people. And that's what we want to uh, communicate to those around us. The queens and the concubines, concubines also. And they praised her. They said, oh yes, she indeed is beautiful. Among the women in the court, the wedding, whatever it is, she is unique. Quoting now, you are the most beautiful woman here tonight. The most beautiful woman in all the world. She doubted her beauty in chapter one, but she is assured that everyone agrees. We might say it this way, God broke the mold with you, honey. <laughs> you look so beautiful. You're the most beautiful woman here tonight at this gathering. You're the most beautiful woman in the world. This is the way he talks to her. And if tonight you find yourself romantically impaired, <laughs> there is a path to healing. You may want to read this book a little bit more. Steal some of the phrases from it, but not others. I'm going to give you some of the warning passages that you shouldn't steal, but he's praising her. If you've never been loved this way, I'm sorry. I will tell you that there are some people that hear this romantic language and say, I've never been loved like that. And I think perhaps the conclusion is I never will. But I want to say to those who may feel that way that the love of Christ is a love like this. Amen? Amen? This is the way he has loved us. People will fail us. And if you didn't have an ideal situation or you don't today or you're with someone who doesn't have a clue how to build you up and edify you again, I'm sorry. And I pray that that will change. But Christ's love for you is an amazing love. Amazing love, how could it be that you, my king, would die for me? I mean, that, that is a song of love sung to a savior who loves us this way. He praises her. He praises the way her mother brought her up. How one is raised to love is important. We were talking recently in a staff meeting, we were talking about the impact of the love of a marriage on children. And we talked about, you know, all these, these different ways that kids might pick up, you know, the way we love. And, and I'll just say this to you. Uh, having raised three boys and gotten, you know, some feedback on their perspective and stuff like that, it's, this is the most important thing you can hear right now, is that your example will be the biggest sermon in your marriage. 
You can preach, you can quote Bible verses, you can do a whole lot of things. And, and look, I think all of the above, do devotions, you know, etc. But the way you love one another will be the most powerful message of all. There's no way to fake it. There's no way to hide it. Now, even in the imperfection moments, you can model what we're looking at tonight, which is healing and reassurance. If you have made mistakes, you can find a way back. His love is a second R, is reconciling. He has reassured her, and now his love is reconciling. And this is the beauty of our God. He's given us a ministry and it's the ministry of what? Reconciliation. If we cannot be reconciled to one another in our marriages, how can we preach a message of reconciliation? If we cannot be reconciled, amen? Now, I know it's not easy sometimes, but here's the point. We can't have a disconnect from this and then we go out into the street and somehow we can just leave that in shambles. That's not the way it works. And so the maidens join the chorus. The other ladies join the chorus. Yes, she is beautiful. Yes, she is blessed. Verse 10, who is it that, that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? This could even point to the starry hosts. Notice, he says, your beauty is like the dawn, you're as beautiful as a full moon. You're as pure as the sun. One writer says in Canaanite mythology, there was a goddess called the, the uh, her name means the dawn, and she was Shahar, a deity in Canaanite mythology. It's recorded in the book, The Beautiful Gods, and Shahar, the dawn, is paired with Shalim, the dusk. One writer says, perhaps intentional mythological allusions are again used here to emphasize the extraordinary beauty, beauty of the woman. But maybe we don't need to see it that way. We can just kind of hear the poetic language that he is trying to find things to describe her. She is one who grows like the dawn. She's beautiful as the moon. She's pure as the sun. She's like an army in all its full regalia marching along. She is no longer a ragged goat keeper, says one writer. She is a radiant bride. Once you come to know Jesus Christ, everything changes. Where did he pluck you from? What were you doing before? You know, David was just tending the sheep until God got a hold of him and anointed him. And David's whole life and trajectory changed. And becoming a believer, that's what happens in our lives. We take on the radiance of our God. We are altogether different and altogether lovely. For me, it's been a total transformation. And I think for many of your stories as well, and the trajectory of my life completely shifted upon knowing this one who loved me. My priorities, my values, my purpose, everything changed. Once we lived in darkness, now we are light in the Lord. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 8, walk as children of light. Amen? And then we talk about the fruit of the light, which comes out in a life. 
This is a remarkable young woman because of who she's married to, the king. She grows like the dawn. She's as beautiful as the moon. She's as pure as the sun. The sun and the moon are the two great lights that reflect the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. And this woman, because of who she is married to, shines with radiant light. She was a peasant girl working in a nowhere land. And Solomon came and loved her and brought her to be the queen. And now her whole life is different. James 1 says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above the Father of lights, of the great lights that he made. And we are his image bearers. We show forth the beauty of our God. I was reading something this week on this section and one of the writers said that, a gentleman said that for him, one of the evidences that there is a God is beautiful women. (laughs) And he goes, okay, wait a minute now. He might be pushing that a little too far, but here's what the Bible says. The Bible says the heavens declare God's glory. It says that just by the physical creation, men and women are without excuse, Romans 1, 19 and 20. And do you know that of that creation, the only image bearers that we know of, according to Scripture, are human beings. And in the design of our bodies, there is a beautiful communication of God's majesty. I don't understand all the connection with the image bearer stuff because God is spirit and all of that, and we all know what that means. But but God made Beautiful things. Amen. Amen. And it's okay for us to acknowledge beauty. I was uh, preaching at a conference and it was on creation evolution kind of stuff. And I said, okay, everybody, um, I want you to imagine the most, and I think it was a men's uh, conference, the most beautiful woman you've ever seen before. And I went, don't lust. (laughs) I want you to just think of the creative majesty of God. And now I want you to just look inside the body at the complexity of the body's systems, uh, the heart, the complexity of our organs, reproduction, the healing of the body, the way a baby is conceived in a womb and grows through the stages of that process. Our God is majestic creative and he didn't make boring things he made complexity and diversity you watch those shows of things under the sea swimming along and you're like man what is that thing right colors flashes you know shining and you're like our god is a god of diversity and complexity look around the room none of us have the same fingerprints we're all uh diverse If you call me, Brother Bert, I know your voice, and you know my voice because you listen to me way too much. (laughs) But here's the thing. We have a unique voice pattern that's ours. How did that happen? And by the way, how can we even think about what I'm talking about right now? Do you know that your brain processes information? It's such an incredible clip that scientists say that your brain has stored everything you've ever interacted with in your entire life 
Recall is another thing. Of course, we're all struggling with that. But here's the point. Your brain is an incredible creation of God. They can't even make a supercomputer that even comes close. And people don't even give God a thought. Is it nothing to you who pass by? His descriptions of her are amazing. She's beautiful, wondrous image bearer. Uh, one writer says, these were quite probably intended by the Holy Spirit to serve as types of Christ and the church. The church is like the moon shining with the strength of the sun. Thus, they become larger than life. And so I went down, verse 11, to see the blossoms of the valley, to the orchard of the nut trees, to see the blossoms of the valley, verse 11, to see whether the vine had budded. Now, she is moving, and she says, before I was aware, my soul, some, think, some people believe that's Solomon there. Her soul is Solomon. Others would just say it's her soul. Set me over the chariots of my noble people. Verse 12 is a very difficult verse, but I'll just say verse 11 is moving in a sexual direction. And the metaphors are definitely uh, intended to speak of marital intimacy. There's no dichotomy, brethren, between spirituality and sexuality. That's a direct quote from O'Donnell's commentary. There's no dichotomy between sexuality and spirituality as long as it's within a biblical framework, i.e. marriage between one man and one woman. So we don't have to make this false dichotomy. This is God's plan in the beauty of the marriage bedroom. It is right and true and good. And so uh, she's, they say, this is probably the daughters of Jerusalem, come back, come back, O Shulamite. Uh, that's the only place where she's called the Shulamite in all the book, twice in 6.13. Come back, come back. This is the word in Hebrew, shuv, or a form of it, turn, repent, Come back, turn around that we may gaze at you. Why should you gaze at the Shulamite? And here's the mention as at the dance of the two companies. Now, the phrase the two companies is the word maha naam, and it's taken from Genesis 32. And Jacob has uh, set up a camp and he's waiting for his brother Esau, who's angry with him. And Esau is going to come with a bunch of men. And these angels show up in Jacob's camp at Mahanaim. And this has been called by some the dance of the angels or that the angels danced over Jacob in, a, in the idea of a host of protection, forming protection and reassurance in his life. And so here's this uh, reference to the dance So they call her back. They call her back to the dance. By the way, Shulamite is a form of Solomon on the feminine side. Solomon's name means peaceful. And Shulamite has the same root idea, just a feminine version of it, which is peaceful. So her name is just like Solomon's name. And your name 
is Christian. And your name is his name. Amen? So when we come into covenant with the Lord, into the new covenant, we carry the name Christian because we are married to him. And we become more like him and we represent him. Jesus and the bride have the same name. The Shulamite is called back to the dance and her name means peaceful. Conflict causes chaos. Shalom brings healing. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, Matthew 5, verse 9, in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want chaos destroyed in your life, you need the fruit of peace. You need the Spirit of God bringing peace to a situation. This is what can kill chaos in your marriage, is peace, the fruit of the Spirit. The angels dance, if you will. And so, Watching her is as mesmerizing as watching two armies battling one another, says one writer. Strategic, strategic moves and counter moves. But the idea of the dance here is a wedding dance. The traditional dance of the two hosts serves to introduce the actual dance. Um, something happened in ancient weddings. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but... It had to do with a dance at a wedding, which was kind of maybe a ritual dance. Some people say it was a sword dance. Some people say it was a dance of two companies. Some scholars believe it was her dance in front of him just for his eyes only. Uh, we don't know for sure. But somehow, in our uh, marriage ceremonies, dancing became <laughs> a real part of it. Amen? There's the first dance. There's the father-daughter dance. There's the mother dancing with, you know, the... the the sun, etc., etc., and this has just probably crept through time, where um, it was picked up from th this culture in the ancient Near East, and so they come together. Everybody wants to see it happen. You know, when you've been married to someone for a long time, people can't imagine the two of you ever being apart. <laughs> you just go together. <laughs> it's just strange to think of people apart from one another who've been married for a long time. And so I'm going to give you a third R. It's reestablish or recelebrate your oneness. And that is get back to intimacy. Get back to loving each other again the way you're supposed to. Now what we're going to see uh, next is a description of the uh, bride. And uh, we'll move through this pretty quickly, but this is the bridegroom speaking of her, they most likely have come back together again or are about to come back together again intimately. And he starts now, instead of going from her head to her feet, it's from her feet to her head. He says, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. And he starts with her feet, and it may be because she's dancing and she's got sandals on, and he moves up from her feet and moves to her hips. Uh, I will say one of the great creations of God is the way he formed a woman. Can I get a witness anyway? <laughs> right? And if she's moving to the dance, then that accentuates her hips. Uh, 
there's something about oh, the way a woman's been created where she can move her hips differently than a man. And anyway, am I at a pulpit right now? I don't feel like I'm at a, anyway. So he's talking about the curves of her body. She's beautiful from head to toe or toe to head. So this is the second time he describes her on a spiritual level, level how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things, who bring the gospel of peace. How beautiful. How beautiful are our feet that carry us to tell others about our great husband. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly, I would not get a card uh, with this following phrase, honey, your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Now, he, he speaks of her navel. In the ancient Near East, the only one who should see uh, a woman's navel is her husband. And all God's people said, <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on with today's clothing, but it seems to be a different world where everybody wants to show their navel and show that their navel is pierced or whatever they got going on. But he enjoys seeing her navel. It's like a goblet of wine. Um, her belly is like a heap of wheat, but this is not a negative. If you imagine a bundle of wheat that's been gathered from the field and tied tightly around the middle, he's basically saying she has an hourglass figure, not that she's built like shredded wheat. Okay, so just so you guys know. <laughs> I would not recommend that you say that. Fence about with with the lilies, uh, speaks of life. From our innermost being, from our belly flow rivers of living water, John seven thirty eight. Jesus talked about the harvest at the end of the age, and he said he would bring the wheat into his barn, Matthew thirteen thirty. Now he continues to move up her body, and he talks about her breasts in verse 3. We've seen these descriptions earlier. He speaks of her neck in verse 4 like a tower of ivory. Your eyes are like pools of Heshbon. These pools were known as the cleanest pools in the area. They're pure, inviting. Some believe that you can tie the idea of her breast to the church is to nurture baby believers with the pure milk of the word. I'll let you think about that one. By the gate of Bath Rabim. He says, your nose, honey, is like the Tower of Lebanon. <laughs> <laughs> which faces toward Damascus. Uh, I, again, would not write a greeting card to your wife on, like, Valentine's Day. Honey, your nose is like a tower. <laughs> you say, what in the world is he talking about then? I don't know. <laughs> but it may speak of prominence and beauty. Or you might say it this way. Boy, you have a strong sniffer, honey. It's amazing. <laughs> One writer puts it this way, that the church is to be able to be a light tower to a dark world and to sniff out the enemy when he's at work. That is, to have the gift of discernment. Your head crowns you like Carmel, the beautiful mountain range moving towards the Mediterranean and the flowing locks of your head like the purple threads of royalty. The king is captivated by your tresses. 
That's kind of the uh, gaps in her hair. The royal uh, thread is, speaks of her royalty and beauty. Redeeming love crowns you as royalty. The church puts on the helmet of salvation. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Amen. We put on the crown and we walk with our God. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love. With all your charms, how full of delights, the New Living says. He's now talking about wanting to enjoy her intimately. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters. Um, he steps back to survey her form. And he is obviously delighted with it. I just wrote in my notes, Lord, on a spiritual level, let your church please and delight you. And so he can wait no longer. He says, I will climb the palm tree. <laughs> I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breast be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples. Your mouth like the best wine. Her kisses are like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. And so she says, I want to be yours. He wants to be hers. And they want to have the passion of love. Flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. There's a, a peace with one another. They can fall asleep very easily and gently in the arms of one another. I am my beloved's final verse and his desire is for me. We've seen other versions of this. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Lord, I wrote, may we always be fully yours. Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be medicinal and pleasing in your sight. Let them be a blessing. Augustine said these words, Jesus is the beauty of all things beautiful. And Richard Hess says, a proper recovery of aesthetic theology lies in an appreciation of the incarnation and the ultimate exhibition of Christ on the cross. At once a terrible and horrifying spectacle and yet also the sacrifice of love that transcends all other forms as the most beautiful and desirable subject the world has ever known. Close quote. He is altogether beautiful. And Isaiah 53 says he had no stately form or beauty that we should look upon him. But Isaiah 53 is also set in the context of him dying a brutal death. The beautiful one, the king of glory, allowed himself to be marred to make us beautiful. That's the story of the gospel. Father, we are grateful for this time in the Song of Songs. We're grateful for both the practical application of romance and love within marriage. We pray over those who have hurting hearts in this area, Lord. There's so much need for healing. There's a lot of sexual brokenness in marriages in the church and the world. A lot of abuse that's gone on. There's been a lot of wrongs done. A lot of unhappy marriages, Lord. Inside and outside the church. And they don't bode well or speak well of the gospel. Sadly, forgive us for that, Lord.
But Lord, there's a great hope here that in the gospel, in the ministry of reconciliation, marriages always have a chance to be better, to symbolize and communicate the gospel in the way we forgive each other, the way we fight fair, the way we reconcile and love again. And tonight, the image put before us, there's a time to dance again. And some of the couples that are here or are watching or will watch this later need to do just that. Teach us to dance again. Teach us the rhythm of love, Lord, so that we can love the ones that you've put in our lives the way that they need to be loved and should be loved. Forgive us, Lord, for our lack of love. We, we could all probably say we, we've had times when we've left our first love and maybe we've refused to be close. But we want to hear you knocking. We want to walk out on that dance floor and learn to dance again, Lord. It's time. There's a time to dance. And it is now. So whatever that means to each of the individuals, whether that's a spiritual thing or a marital thing or both, I pray that you would allow your Holy Spirit, Lord, to move in our hearts. I know you want to move. It's really about us allowing you to mold and shape us. So I pray you would do just that tonight. I pray that as you're sitting here meditating and letting the word go into your soul, that you'd let it affect you where you live. Maybe you need to do some business with your king. There's always a chance for a new beginning in Christ. And so I pray that you would find that place where you can be honest. Let him do his surgery. You'll be the better for it. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. And he will exalt you at the proper time. We cast all our care on you, Lord. You care for us. Give us renewed hope and vigilance and all that we need, Lord, by the power of your spirit, in Christ's name. Amen.